Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Underground Nights. Evening, James. Evening, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. I can't believe we're doing this. It's cool, isn't it's it? It's very exciting indeed. Uh, to, to be doing a podcast with you about all of the things that we love is a, is a dream. Uh, it's, mate, it was mad how this came about, to be fair. I mean, we're, we're not the same, really. I mean, you, you're, you know, you have a degree in feminism. You read The Guardian and you hate football. Yeah. Pretty much you're on my shit list before we've even got anywhere. But right, Well, likewise, as a, as a son reading football fan, but this is the wonderful thing, I think, about people that are into niche things. And by niche things, I mean kind of genre films and so forth, is that for the most part, from conventions and stuff I've been to, I get on with everyone that likes the same kind of films as me because there's not many of us about. Like in the Venn diagram of life, the crossover of, of people that are into underground cinema, uh, you can bond over this one thing, and this is what what's great about our friendship developing. I mean, do, do, do you want to say a bit about how we how we came into contact with each other? Yeah, it was. Uh, well, you wrote a book about the films of Danny Dyer, <laughs> and I thought I was literally the only person out there who really liked his films, and then went on this mad quest to watch all of them. <laughs> and during my research for this, bugger me, somebody already not only had somebody else done this already, they'd written a book about right. it. Right, and, and and as you say, I mean, if you were gonna pick the who 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 was the author of a book on Danny Dyer films you wouldn't necessarily pick someone with a, a degree in feminism but um but I think this is the wonderful thing in life is that I like to live a very rich and varied life so while I might enjoy a night at the theater I will also be the first one out there buying you know the Toxic Avenger 3 Last Temptation of Toxie on Blu-ray uh, I, I I I'm a I'm a, a, a cultural weirdo basically ditto I mean I think when I saw you tweeting about a film called Hyena mm. That was the kick for me. I thought, do you know what? I want to. I, I want to do a podcast with this guy because we are we are so singing from the same hymn sheet, unexpectedly, admittedly, but definitely from the same hymn yeah, sheet. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned Hayna. I mean, that that is, as you've rightly pointed out, it's one of the best films in recent years. It's almost certainly one of the best British crime movies since Long Good Friday. And everything about well, how I heard about that film is bizarre. In that I, as you know, collect vinyl, and. Um, I've bought soundtracks before from from Death Waltz Records because they release you know films like you know Cannibal Holocaust and so forth on vinyl and I got their you know email newsletter and there was this new soundtrack by done by the band The The um, for this film Hyena. Now I had heard nothing about this film and granted I do live in Canada now so I'm not you know, as in tune to what's going on in England but I tried you know it, you know there is a thing called the internet so I do hear a lot of stuff and what was weird was I loved the soundtrack artwork so much that I then googled the film and immediately that morning then bought it on iTunes 
watched it, couldn't believe how awesome it is. Because really that film sums up a lot that's interesting about modern film is that, and this will lead into what we're talking about later, but you take a genre like the British crime movie, it's kind of got a dirty name now. Like people are sick, they think there's too many British crime films, it's been done. But then suddenly this film comes along that takes a completely different angle, done beautifully, and you can reinvent a genre, which is what they did. And as you say, it's a weird thing. I discovered a new film through vinyl. You know, that, that, that doesn't happen often. Uh, mate, again, another thing we, we do have in common is traipsing around <laughs> record shops buying vinyl. Did you see on, on Sunday I bought uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service? I saw that. God. Mint condition, the vinyl, the sleeve. Mate, it's 45 years old. Of course, the sleeve's going to have some wear. Yeah. But it just blew my mind crawling around on my hands and knees underneath shelving, finding all these old US imports. Next time you're over... Yeah. You have got to come there. I would love to. Yeah, no, I absolutely will. I mean, this is how I spend most of my time. And this is the thing I love about where I live in in Canada now is that vinyl stores can survive here. Like there's a vinyl shop in the city, St. John, that I live in that has been there with the same guy running it, same guy behind the counter for 35 years. Could you find a single vinyl shop, even in Berwick Street or Notting Hill and all the places where they're supposed to be, you know, uh, uh, a vibe of record collecting? No one there has been behind that counter for 35 years. And equally here, there are still DVD rental shops that have VHS in them. I love that. When I see you tweet pictures of VHS stuff and I just like my mind is just blown. (laughs) You can't even rent DVDs here, let alone anything. I know, right? It's gone. And and, and this is the this is the kind of thing that's happening in Canada at the moment or, or in North America is a lot of these horror movies are being released on VHS, like it's become a way for smaller filmmakers to get their films seen because VHS collectors like myself will buy almost anything that comes out on VHS. I mean, to give you an example, I was in a shop in Toronto a few, a few months ago called Suspect Video, amazing emporium where if you want to find Faces of Death on Blu-ray, they've got it. If you want to find Don't Go in the Woods Alone on VHS, they've got it. On the shelf was this film called Ryan's Babe, which is a Canadian comedy uh, which it says on the back that it's kind of it, it taps into the same unintentional comedy vein as Tommy Wiseau's uh, The Room, right? Uh-huh. I.e., which is I guess is a roundabout way of saying it's fucking awful. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I've not actually watched it. I bought this. It was on the shelf. Never heard of it. It's a shrink wrapped, brand new, recently produced VHS, limited to fifty copies. I've got number four, done by a Canadian video label called um, Video Video Nomicon. Now it was thirty dollars. Now I, I don't have. How much, how much is that in? How much is that in real 15 money? Fifteen pounds, right? Okay. So I, I think carefully about what I buy. I mean, I don't have money to burn. So if I go in a shop, I think very carefully about Blu-rays I buy. What do I want the new Goodfellas box set for thirty dollars? I snap this up without even thinking about it because they've it, someone's gone to the trouble of releasing a film on VHS. And so for for if you're a horror filmmaker and you've made a film, what a great way to reach uh, the right people, i.e., VHS collectors. Before all of the uh, foul critics listeners shoot themselves, they're all expecting the news now. Should we move on to the news? Let's do the news, my friend. So this week's news, not a lot going on, to be fair, outside of of celebrity madness. But today, Sundance did release a couple of premieres that they're going to be hosting in 2016. The first one is um, the follow-up to Tusk. Uh, the new Kevin Smith film, which is called Yoga Hoses, which is a Canadian film set in Canada. Do you know about this? Did you watch Tusk, James? I, I, I haven't seen it, no, but it, but it's it, it's an interesting phenomenon, you know, which is that obviously a lot of uh, Hollywood movies are shot in Canada. And I, lots of my, you know, a, a very good comedian friend of mine, Derek Sagan, actually is, is in 
White House down because they shot their hair for, uh, for, for cost reasons. But what's interesting is how many films, American films, are being shot in Canada and based and set in Canada. Oh, yeah, this is all set in Canada. It's part of a trilogy. You've got Task, yeah. Yoga Hoses, and I can't remember the name of the third one. I think it might have the word moose in the title. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but Johnny Depp is back in this. Wow. He was in the first one. And you have to say, well, why is Johnny Depp, you know, appearing in this weird kind of Kevin Smith small budget film? It's because his daughter's in it. Right. She stars along Kevin Smith's daughter. It, it, it's also obviously because it's awesome. And this is, I think, the great thing about, you know, there's all those phrases you hear, like, you know, one for the show, two for the money. And, and George Clooney makes, uh, said something about how he, he, he acts for free, but gets paid to sit in a trailer. And similarly, with someone like Johnny Depp, you know, he does these big budget movies, which some some are well received, some aren't. But they're obviously in a lot of cases for the money. So with a movie like this, they're doing it for the love. And of course, they get to be in my favourite country, Canada, for a few months. What's not to like? Well, uh, jury's out on this one because <laughs> I was not big on Tusk. And my massive kind of love affair with Kevin Smith is rapidly coming to an end at the moment, right. which I never thought I would say that. Yeah. Uh, and the other one... Yeah. 31 new rob zombie yes again i mean i mean rob zombie is a is a phenomenon in his, in his own right it's weird his films i like the idea of them but i almost don't enjoy them as much as i should it, it's that thing where obviously a lot of what he's doing is paying homage to, to films that, that we all grew up watching all the slasher movies and the video nasties of the 70s and 80s and so forth um I find them somewhat, either sometimes too glossy, sometimes too over the top. And I, th I think, as, as we'll talk about later, all of the, the Canadian films that I've picked for my list of, of favourite Canadian horror movies of, of, of recent years, the, the skill they have is they maintain the same kind of energy and sense of menace as 70s movies like Chainsaw Massacre, whereas Zombie kind of throws so much into every scene. There's almost too much going on for me, personally. Can you guess who's starring in the new Rob Zombie film? I, I cannot guess, no. It's, it's always Sherry Moon Zombie. Sorry, oh, I, thought you... <laughs> I, I, I thought you were in for a, in, a, me a surprise there. Tell me it was Danny Dyer or... or no, no, it's Sherry Moon Zombie. It. Yeah, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, he gets criticised for that sometimes. To be fair, she's never miscast, you know, and which you can't say that about Kurt Sutter and, and his um, extremely talented wife, you know, uh, who, who, you know, of course, stole the show in... Uh, playing Gemma Teller in, in Sons of Anarchy, yet is completely miscast in, in The Bastard Executioner. So Yeah, she's so out of place. It, it keeps pulling me out of it. Yeah, it's it's beyond... Uh, it, it's utterly insane. Whereas, you know, the good thing with the Rob Zombie movie is you can't say, oh, so-and-so's miscast because there's so much madness going on. You know, uh, fair play to him. We continue our adventures through Canadian cinema, where James and I are both going to pick our top three Canadian films. Yeah. Right, James, if you start with your number three. My, my number three was it, it is a Canadian film. That, again, I admit I didn't know it was Canadian, even though I knew the director was Canadian. Uh, Videodrome, which was one of the first horror movies I saw at a very young age. And of course, what a, an amazing horror movie in that it, it, it combines kind of psychological and, um, you know, uh, real gore with uh, VHS, which, you know, the, the, the whole film, really, for, for a child um, of the video nasty generation as I am, it was an absolute dream because that's how I felt. Watching this shit come to life 
for him was how I felt when I was watching an old, you know, pirate copy of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So uh, it's one of those movies which, again, not only terrified the living daylights out of me as a child, but continues to do so to this day. And only two weeks ago, I was in Toronto and I bought an original lobby card, uh, a video drone from a cool shop there called Hollywood Canteen. So I think most people listening uh, will have either heard of the film or, or certainly seen it. But uh, video drone for me, one of one of the all time greats. Yep. No, I've seen it. I do you know what? I've not rewatched it for a long time because I think I'm a bit older than you. And I used to have a paper round. Right. And in, in 1983, when this came out, I would just started my paper round. The news agents where I work from had a like a big um, library of tapes you could rent. Awesome. And uh, if you're a paper boy, you could have your wages paid double if you took VHS rentals. <laughs> genius. <laughs> And so I spent my the the entire eighties watching an awful lot of um of of VHS movies. Gorgeous. I mean, I mean, just just hearing that it it makes me drool. To be honest, there's nothing I love more than finding a dusty pile of VHS in those glory days of old. I I I miss them a lot. I tell you. Okay. Well, my number three is uh, a film. I think that somebody posted to you did you ever find out who sent it because it's ginger snaps yeah and, and again one of my favorites as well um i i didn't know i mean yeah, t- t- for the listeners um I, I received in the post a copy it was actually ginger snaps two it was the, it was the sequel um, uh, okay ginger snaps unleashed and uh you're right i wrote to you straight afterwards saying um did you send me a copy of ginger snaps and you didn't so did i get to the bottom of it no the only possible you know uh, explanation for this is that i ordered it drunk which does happen one of the downsides of um of the of of the internet is of course that you know you get drunk and you go on facebook and 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 ebay and suddenly discover that you've uh, you've ordered a shitload of stuff that you didn't know but at least it was something good for those that haven't seen it it's uh, back in 2000 canadian horror it's directed by john called john fawcett but i i don't really know what else he's gone on to do do you i don't know no because i i have seen the sequels i have to say mm. They ain't great. No, I mean they're not. They're not great. I mean the thing with the original is is that it is a bona fide classic, and and unlike a lot of horror movies, which we, we're probably going to talk about on this series, it was acknowledged as such at the time of release. It, it, this this isn't you know even though it wasn't you know main main mainstream in the same way that say Blair Witch became. Ginger Snaps. I remember when it came out. In that I found out about it not through um, underground means, i.e. a collector's convention or through a fanzine. I, I read about it through a glowing review in Empire magazine, you know, so. Oh, wow. Um, so it was, yeah. It was, it was properly kind of, you know, a mainstream, essentially. Yeah. I mean, for those that don't know, it's, it's, a, it, it's a werewolf mm-hmm. pick, essentially, about two teenage sisters. And um, Catherine Isabel uh, rocks up in this, who I've got a sneaky feeling it's going to appear again in at least one of our lists. Right, yeah. Set in a high school, so it ticks all the boxes, but... It, I don't know. I just, but I thought the effects in it were just so cool. The story was really kind of it, it kind of deviated enough from the traditional kind of high school horror. Well, of course, yeah, and also, I mean, it has this kind of underlying thing in in the it's it, in the, essentially it's about um, a girl coming on her period. That's basically what it's that's mm. the kind of underlying in the same way you know, um, Nightmare on the Street Two, Freddy's Revenge is is about uh, a guy. Uh, coming out of the closet it's 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 this kind of it's a werewolf movie, <laughs> um, with this kind of which is essentially about a, a, a woman coming of age yeah no I, and you know if anyone hasn't seen it then absolutely that that that's a must um moving on to your number two my number two i am actually coming uh 
up to date with my number two um, in that I am always all about the present. I, I mean, a, a video gym, obviously, I mentioned because it's in my mind at the moment because I've seen it recently and recently bought the lobby card for it. But um, I am coming very much up to date with a movie that actually only re I recently saw like a couple of months ago, which is Lost After Dark which is unique in that it's a Canadian slasher movie. And like a lot of recent slasher movies and like Rob Zombie movies, it is an homage to and uh, a spoof of essentially the 80s horror movies, the slasher movies we saw then, the ones we saw with the, with the beautiful designed video boxes, or like the video nasties. The big difference uh, between it and almost all of the other movies like this is that it isn't trying to be funny what it is is it's a literal it's a glossy beautifully made film but it's made literal as if it was an 80s movie made then so there's no kind of winks to camera there's no kind of nudge nudge there's no deliberate gags there's no scream type self-referential bullshit it is an 80s slasher movie made now as if it was an 80s slasher movie being made then so the, the clothing's all spot on the things they say is right and of course inevitably that means that there's elements of it which aren't great because a lot of them weren't right down to the fact that kind of like what Tarantino and Rodriguez did with Grindhouse there are moments when the screen flickers and there's actually a bit where there's a real missing but it isn't completely over the top you actually do feel like you are watching a movie from them and like a lot of the horror movies we're going to be talking about it is through the Canadian distributor Raven Banner who um I'm also responsible for one of my other uh, recent favorites, which, which, which isn't on the list, but, but, but should be called The Editor, which was very similar. And I'm putting these a joint number two. The Editor is essentially, um, it's like a 70s Giallo, basically. It's like an Argento movie. And that is slightly more tongue in cheek. But again, slightly. I've, well, I've, well, I've seen both of these. Yeah, and it's complete. Yeah, you're right. It, th yeah. That is much more overt in its piss taking. But the difference, the thing about the two of them, unlike a lot of these films, is that they both hold up as beautiful proponents of, of their respective genres. Lost After Dark, I love. You've nailed it, because it, it does, it plays it completely straight, mm. apart from the real missing bit, which did throw me a little yeah. bit. And but there's a reason I, for it, right? In that, then that, that then becomes yes, yeah. right? But I could watch Robert Patrick in anything. I, as soon as I, as soon as I hear he appeared on screen, I was that was it. I was all in. Yeah. What I think what's interesting about Lost of Stuck is right down to the fact that at the end you are waiting for a clever twist, aren't you? Like like mm -hmm. everything about the film implies and suggests there's going to be a clever twist. Like it's going to be. Because there's going to be someone you weren't expecting or there's some reason behind it. or, or and, and films like Scream, Scream have kind of conditioned us to, to expect that. And then when that doesn't happen and it actually just has a very, very boringly conventional ending, you then realise that what they've cleverly done is toyed with your expectations, that there would be a kind of 90s or noughties slash twist on it. And actually there isn't. Those movies in the 80s didn't have a clever twist. It was like, it ends, someone gets cut it off and then, ah, monster! Right, that was it. So in some ways, in on so many layers, it's clever. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that by having a shit ending, it's more clever <laughs> than if it had a clever ending. If that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> My number two mm. is uh, also uh, it's a Cronenberg film. Yes which is Maps to the Stars. Yeah, genius. Good job. Uh, do you know, I, I'm i not big into the the early Cronenberg stuff, and I've, I've watched pretty much all of it, but it was a long time ago. Yeah. And then recently I, I watched rewatched Eastern Promises, History of Violence, and, and, um, and Maps to the Stars. Yeah. 
And they are all really strong, punchy films. But Maps to the Stars is just phenomenal. The cast is amazing. Julianne Moore, from what I gather, she 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 did two films um, last year, but they only they put back Maps to the Stars and didn't screen it for Oscars to avoid a conflict. If she hadn't have done that other film, which is the Alzheimer's one, I believe. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Which, which yeah. Is still Alice, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I swear she would have nailed Best Actress for, for Maps of the Stars. Yeah. It absolutely rips Hollywood a new arsehole. Yeah. The darkness, the backstabbing, it is just brutal. Yeah, um, yeah I'm taking you've seen this Yeah, one. yeah, I have. And, and, and I agree, I absolutely love it. And it's, and it's I mean, kudos to you for, for, for bringing that up because it is hugely underrated in the I think if you ask most people to name their top 10 Cronenberg films they wouldn't even think to mention it um and yeah it, it's probably as you rightly say it's probably his masterpiece oh I just I just couldn't believe what I was seeing on screen it is so twisted so dark and they carry it off especially Julianne Moore effortlessly you know the horror yeah. unfolding it is is so real yeah yeah I agree yeah, guys, if you've not seen Maps of the Stars, and you know, and as James has mentioned, this has fallen under the radar for a lot of people. You should absolutely seek it out. Yeah, absolutely. Go on, what's your number one? Number one is indeed Wolf Cop. Ah, yeah, right? <laughs> leads us obviously extremely um, neatly later on to our to our interview with the director. Wolf Cop, again, is a film that I discovered through the um, medium of VHS and vinyl. In the, I, I think on, on Instagram, I saw someone had mocked up uh, a, a VHS cover of what it would have looked like if it was, you know, released in the 80s. And um, that was kind of my first... I'd, I'd seen that and I didn't know what it was, but then I went into HMV in St. John, where I live, and I saw Wolf Cop on the shelves, right? Um, the Blu-ray of it. And I just thought, well, what awesome artwork. But as with a lot of films, I thought, can the movie live up to the artwork? So I took a picture of it and then posted it on Instagram. On my, I have a, a feed that is solely devoted to my collection called Tromaville Citizen, if anyone's interested. And I posted, is this as good as it looks? And I had about 50 responses, which I never normally get that many responses to something. Everyone going, you know, absolutely, it's as awesome as it looks. I did a bit of research and discovered that it was, you know, funded by this um, essentially CBC-driven competition whereby filmmakers can enter shorts or proposals and then they get the money for a full feature and I, I went back to HMV the next morning and actually waited for it to open to buy it and I don't know how many people listening to this how many people across the world have stood outside an HMV at nine o'clock in the morning waiting for the shop to open so they could buy Wolf Cobb on Blu-ray and I, I, I absolutely love it it's set in a, in a small town in Canada I live in a small town in Canada so I, so the wonderful thing about the build-up to the it, to the film is that I can really relate to the to the town that he lives in uh, the environment and everything else he, he's also a very heavy drinker which I also relate to and uh, and really it, it was like the most enjoyable 90 minutes I'd spent and and the reason it's my number one which I'm aware of the fact you know as I say I'm someone that lives in the moment you ask me what my favorite things are it's always the thing that I'm into at that time I've watched Wolf Cop probably more times than any other film in the last six months I also bought the soundtrack on vinyl which again I it was an awesome band they had to called um uh, uh shooting guns so I've listened to the soundtrack more than any other uh, record on my record player for the last six months. So uh, all, all I can really do is implore people, American listeners, like it's on American Netflix, British. I don't know. Is it on British Netflix? Have you seen it? It's on, it's on we, we, 
we we discussed this in a minute, but it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, 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 that's right. So it, it's available to watch. Bottom line is... Oh, it's also on Film 4 in a couple of weeks' time. Oh, is it? Well, there we go. Talk about Topical. I just, I, I love the spirit of it. I love the atmosphere. I love the story behind it. It, it That, too, is a Raven Banner film, which, uh, for those who don't know, Raven Banner's a Canadian horror distributor, which has become, in North America, almost... Um, a seal of quality for horror fans. Like, there's a lot of horror movies made. The wonderful thing about uh, Canada is, of course, we mentioned before, you can there's still video rental shops and so forth. But a film like Wolf Cop finds its way into HMV. And genre fans, and this is the same the world over, still want to own uh, the, the physical thing. So a lot of horror movies that I've seen recently, I think actually Lost After Dark, which was the last one I on my list, I actually discovered that in Walmart. I mean, the, the, the most corporate and, and, and biggest corporation imaginable. And yet I discover as a genre fan that reads all of the horror magazines. I'm on all the websites all the time. I'm in all the ho- I mean, horror VHS collectors unite on Facebook. And yet the way that I discovered Lost After Dark, another Raven Manor film, was by seeing it on the shelves in Walmart. So uh, Raven Banner really are the reason why these films kind of get get get. It's a seal of quality amongst horror fans. So uh, it's Wolf Cop and uh, and and I love it. I've got nothing to add to that <laughs> apart from that I love Wolf Cop and we we discuss that in way more detail with uh, with the director shortly. Um, <clears throat> my number one is um, American Mary. Good call. I love the Soska sisters and. Although, a caveat, their recent work, but this just seemed to come out of nowhere. And Catherine Isabel, again, is absolutely amazing in this. You've got this broke medical student who, you know, for money ends up doing this procedure in what they call the body modification kind of um, I don't know, arena where these guys want things like bifurcated tongues or weird piercings or all manner of weird and wonderful things. And so she, she takes on these um, jobs to essentially pay her way through college, but then, you know, something really terrible and dark happens and she ends up leaving college and doing this full time along with this vicious revenge film. Yeah. So you've got the the two kind of, and I just, I thought it was, blew my mind. It was a really interesting kind of subgenre of people to get involved with. Yeah. And, and as you, you say, can see some of the people are real, aren't they? Yeah. And the tone just shifts. Uh, it shifts a couple of times within the film. So it's in its own genre in that it doesn't, it doesn't tick a particular horror box, does it? No. I mean, you've got, you do have some vicious. Yeah kind of horrific stuff especially when she goes down the revenge room but then you've also got these almost realistic surgeries um and none more so when when the soska sisters themselves roll up as this kind of incestuous twins relationship where they want to have their arms swapped over and horns put in their head you know it's it's just Bonkers. Well, and, and that's what you need to do with, with, you know, I mean, obviously the horror movies that, that I've picked and, and, and love are often following a, a formula, whereas you cannot beat a film where it starts. And of course, the, the way most people discover American Mary was through horror film festivals. And there is no better way to see a movie like that, where it just, you know, like Martyrs, those kind of movies that we just go in, you know nothing about it, and it just starts. And you're just like, where the fuck is this taking me my only regret is that the, the way you know the american mary 2 seems unlikely which is a shame because when they planned that road trip i all in my mind i could think it's her landing in california yeah. 
and having way loads of fun down there as well. Yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> I mean, it could still happen. You never know. I mean, this is the one thing nowadays is you see movies where the sequel suddenly happens 10, 15, 20 years later. So it could still happen in the future. Yeah, well, they've gone on to do, um, is it WWE films right, or the yeah. wrestling? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't mad. They did a sequel to, I can't remember what it was, that wasn't great. And they've done something else recently. And I just... I mean, the thing oh, with those movies is that you know it, it, it's they've got a built-in fan base, right? And I guess it's it's guaranteed money in the bank. Movie like that, like with those WWE movies, WWE fan is going to go and see any film that they release. So it's kind of, and this is the thing is they've gone off and done what are essentially money jobs. So maybe that is a good sign that they're going to come back and revisit this once they've got the funding. Yeah, well, anything originally, you know, if they do their own work or do something that they've you know come up with rather than a sort of payday sequel yeah for sure should we speak to lol dean let's speak to lol dean i mean after all you know it, it, it is my lump he is the director of my number one canadian film and let's be honest i mean the, the man's a genius and there's a and there's a very very interesting story let's let, let's let's hear from lol I know a bit of the history behind the, the, the genesis of, of Wolf Clock, but I just wondered if you could kind of uh, talk us through kind of how uh, it was conceived and, and how um, financing came in and then distribution. Obviously, it's become this kind of colossal success. How, how was that process? Uh, it was a long and winding road, honestly. It was uh, the, the development to get the movie made was probably harder than making a movie itself, I would say, which is saying something for independent film uh, (laughs) it was a pretty cool experience i just really wanted to make uh, a high concept movie i love like high concept b movies and i just remember i don't know what it was exactly but i feel like i i saw like one of the twilight movies and i was like this is a werewolf now you know like the uh (laughs) the shirtless teen boy in love who like morphs into like a cgi puppy and i just remember thinking like this is not right. We need a we need a cooler werewolf. So I think a lot of it kind of came out of me wanting to make a badass werewolf, something more like like when I was a really young kid, uh, I loved Teen Wolf. And then, you know, you get older and you see like American Werewolf in London and things like that. And it's like, where are these werewolves? You know, so um, it was me wanting to make just a high concept, crazy film. And um, I'm I'm from Saskatchewan in Canada. And our, our film industry was kind of at a really low point at the time and there wasn't a lot going on. And I said like, well, damn it, let's just get some people together and let's make a movie. And we were going to do it with nothing. But uh, uh, luckily some buddies and, and I, we, we found enough people who, who believed in the idea. And rather than just go whole hog and make the movie for $50,000 or something, which was kind of what we were thinking of doing, we said, let's make a concept trailer first. And before we just do it, let's see if there's an audience for it. So uh, we, we, I think we had like 40 volunteers on a weekend and we made a cool little trailer, which I think pretty, pretty much sums up the tone of the, of the, of the film itself. And we took that trailer and we started looking for funding. Uh, nobody, we couldn't get funding, uh, at least not from any like actual film, film bodies, government bodies. Um, I think Wolf Cop is a little too silly to fit in the mold of traditional financing for films. So, uh, which didn't surprise me. I hoped someone would take a risk and, and we got lucky that there was something called the Sinecu accelerator. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it was basically, uh, the way I kind of describe it when I have to explain it quickly is it's like American idol for filmmaking where, uh, they were just 
it was an independent uh, group of people, uh, had some financing, had partnerships with the national uh, theater chain, Cineplex, and they said, if you bring us your ideas and you bring us your trailers and you can show you can engage an audience and people want to see it, we will pick one film and, and put it in theaters and give it a budget of up to a million, which, I mean, when you're thinking of doing it for $50,000, it's a lot better, right? So, uh, yeah, we entered uh, three months later. Very long story short, ours was selected out of 90 other projects, uh, some really other cool projects, too. And uh, we were lucky enough to then take on the task of making the movie. Can I quickly, I just want to roll back before we go too kind of deep into Wolfcop, just to get a, you know, an introduction of how you started out in, in the industry. And, you know, I know you've done a lot of short films and, um, you know, you've done another feature before Wolfcop. Do you want to kind of talk us through that? Sure. Yeah, I, I've uh, I've been wanting to make movies pretty much since childhood. Um, you know, I remember th- like seeing things like Teen Wolf, Superman, Robocop. And obviously, when you're a kid, you just want to be those characters. And then you get older and you think, well, that's obviously not going to happen. <laughs> so uh, I might as well make movies. You know, if I'm sure a lot of people don't have that experience. They just watch the movies and love it. But uh, I just got so delusionally in love with uh, filmmaking. I just wanted to make it. So uh, I would just do it ever since I was about seven or eight. I'd get my hands on a video camera and I'd get my friends together and we'd make a lot of really just horrible movies every weekend, you know, learning slowly one step at a time, you know, using things like ketchup for fake blood and all the hilarious mistakes I think young filmmakers make and uh, just kept doing it, never grew out of it, took it in film school and uh, doing short films. I, I was really conscious about making something all the time. You know, I feel like the biggest lesson I learned and, and the mistakes I see other people make, and I made them myself too, but I think a lot of people like to say they're a filmmaker, but they don't make films. Mm. And so for me, it was always important to, I can't go a year without shooting something, you know, for better or worse. It doesn't mean I'm going to show it to anybody, but uh, at least once a year, you got to make something. And I just kept making short films, and I think about four or five years ago, I decided I wanted to make features. You know, it was I felt I was ready. You're never actually ready, but uh, I wanted to make features. I wanted to start with horror because of my idols like Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi. That's kind of I, I loved their career, and I wanted that as a model. So I uh, I wrote a zombie script and I pitched it to a Saskatchewan production company called Mind's Eye, and they said. It's pretty cool, but uh, we're having a hard time getting it sold. It was going to be about two million budget because um, I've never done anything. You know, they, my short films didn't do any. You know, they didn't rock the world or anything. They weren't Oscar nominated. So uh, they said, "Why don't you be an assistant to a director on another movie we're making?" And that movie was Thirteen Eerie, which ended up being my first feature. And it's another long, ridiculous story, but basically. I was hired to be Roger Christian's um, assistant. And part of my oh, okay. duties was storyboarding the whole film, uh, being involved with, you know, every meeting he went to. And about literally two weeks before the movie started production, uh, they found out that Roger's citizenship to become Canadian hasn't gone through. He, he's actually from the UK. And because of that, they were going to lose like a, a big chunk of their financing, like a third of the budget, unless they got a Canadian director. And I was, you know, standing right there and I'd storyboarded <laughs> the whole movie. So 
uh, Roger agreed to let me direct the film. And it was a crazy experience. I, I basically say I was baptized in blood. I was thrown in. The budget was over $3 million, and prior to that, I had only done things that, like, you know, $500 short films. So it was a crazy trial by fire, but an invaluable experience um, to get me to Wolf Cup, for sure. And, and what's amazing is, like you say, I mean, you know, some people talk about wanting to do something creative. People say that they want to write a book or whatever. And actually, you can be that thing if you just start doing it. So actually, even though it was a, a baptism by blood for you, you know, you had you had been making films. You hadn't just been talking about wanting to be a, a, a director and a filmmaker for years. You'd actually been been doing it. And that, like all of the all of the great directors, that that's what they do. That's how you um, that's how you train for it, right? Oh, for sure. I think I think the people who do it and keep doing it are the people who it's like a drug, you know, like they I'm sure it's no different um, for comedy, but it's like you're it, you can't turn it off. You're doing it. You just need to do it. And that's why I think some people were like, why the hell is this kid getting to suddenly direct this movie? Uh, because, you know, it's a pretty quick jump from uh, director's assistant to directing the movie. And uh, I think, you know, it might have looked like, oh, this guy just was given a crazy break. But there's a reason I, I believe I was in that room because I was pushing to get my own film made and obsessed with it. So, yeah, yeah when it, whenever anyone gives me excuses on, you know, the 50 reasons they can't make their short film or get their script written, it's like, well, that that's fine. It's all well and good. But if you really want to do it, you'll do it. Yeah, that's it. And you're right. It is exactly like comedy in that, you know, quite often when a, st a stand up suddenly gets their, their, their big break and people talk about it as like, where did they come from? And it's like, well, they have yeah. been performing in pubs for five, ten, however many years. You just no one knew about it, but they were compelled to do it in the same way you were compelled uh, to make films, even though there's no money in it. And it's the same thing with, with comedy and all creative fields. You know, if, if a comedian's in between big paying gigs, well, guess what? They're still performing. If a writer is not being paid to write their next novel, they are still writing. It's, 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 uh, it's not only your passion, but it's just, you're compelled to do it. Oh yeah. That's for damn sure. I mean, I've, I've barely worked since Wolf Cop, uh, but I've been writing scripts uh, just for myself, you know, just keeping busy on the hopes that once I'm done Wolf Cop 2, I can get another one going. You know, you, you just work for yourself. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing I, I must ask is that, I mean, I, you know, and I like to think I'm quite in tune with, uh, with movies that are coming out and especially horror movies because I'm obsessed with them. But my first discovery of Wolf Cop was in HMV. Um, and and the, the one thing that seems to be amazing about horror movies is that they are still extremely successful and doing well on the DVD format because it's the one genre that people are still collecting. Yep, totally. And is that something you found at conventions and so forth when you when you go and meet the fans and so forth? That you know, I mean, with comedies, people are happy to watch it at a cinema. They're happy to watch it on iTunes or Netflix. But but horror fans want to physically own the thing and they want it signed by you and they want the poster. Um, is that why the, the the Canadian horror film industry is is, is seem certainly from an outsider looking in, it looks like it's incredibly uh, it's booming right now. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, uh, I, I I have a hard time wrapping my head around it, but it's kind of cool that even on a very small scale, the horror community is so rabid that they really make you feel like you're a part of a group, like you're inclusive. You know, like I've I've been trying for a decade to feel like I was a part of some kind of film community. I mean, I don't, I can't speak for other people, but you always kind of feel like an outsider. I always felt like I'm just this guy in the middle of Canada doing my little projects with my friends that no one ever watches. 
Um, but well, as soon I... as you get to do a film, like as soon as Wolf Cop isn't even a large film, but it's the first one that's afforded me the opportunity to travel a bit and go, you know, I've, I've got to go to Europe, uh, the States a couple times and all across Canada. And it's the first time I've had just random people who I've never known, you know, bringing, I'm, I'm shocked every single time someone pulls out like the DVD or the Blu-ray or has a shirt that I didn't even know existed, things like that. It's like, wow, this is so, I actually feel like I'm a part of a community and there's people who know about the movies and care about them in a way that I, I did as a fan, you know? Amazing. I was just going to say that in the UK, Wolf Cop, the first time I heard about it was last summer, uh, just before Fright Fest. And, uh, you know, a, a few of the guys in the kind of UK film community, they, they sort of sleep out overnight to get tickets. Yeah. And the one film they wanted on this sleepover to get a ticket for was Wolf Cop. <laughs> That's crazy. It blows my mind <laughs> to hear that. You know, it's so... I think it's the part of it is the Canadianness of it all for me is it's so surprising that we would make something so small and so uh, hand sewn together with blood and sweat. And I mean, honestly, I, I can hear the the gasp when I tell people in a, in a crowd or at like a Q&A that we had 17 days and probably in truth, less than a million when you count all the pennies. And it's just shocking that you can do something so small and personal and people will respond that way. It's weird. Right. No, I can imagine. And also what's brilliant about it is that you've, obviously it's so intrinsically uh, linked with, with where you shot it in that I'm sure people from Saskatoon love seeing all of the, the locations and places. And I guess what I mean is it, you, you've not um, tried to make it, uh, you've not tried to pander to either British audiences or American audiences. You've made uh, the, the film that you wanted to make, which is intrinsically linked to that place. And yet it has still appealed to people on all, you know, all over the globe. Yeah, I guess there's rednecks everywhere. <laughs> uh, we, yeah, I just, uh, I wanted to make it like a love letter to the province because it had had such a hard time lately with our film community. And we didn't get to see Saskatchewan very often on, on the big screen. So I didn't want to glorify it. I wanted to playfully mock it, but still show the landscapes and the people and, and, just because it's uh, it's where I live, you know, and I I do believe in the whole write what you know. You know, I wouldn't write a big city cop. Maybe if I grew up in a big city, I would. But to me, Wolf Cop always had to be from a small little town, a hard drinking, uh, snowy, cold town. I just couldn't, you know, I loved it so much and it was I had such fun watching it. And yet I go on IMDb and see you know, the greatest score in the world. <laughs> do you think there were people who watched it who just completely didn't get it? And and do you do you do you value any audience or do you do you see where I'm coming from? Are you happy that people who perhaps don't get it are still watching it, or are you or was this you know aimed at a very specific market or type of person? Uh, I mean, I think when the I actually had the name before I had the script. It was just like a visualization, and as soon as I committed to calling it Wolf Cop, I knew right away in my mind two things: there was going to be a lot of people who hated it or wouldn't watch it just for the stupidity of the title. Hmm. And secondly, in my opinion, it's critic proof. I'm not going to say like it could be garbage because we tried really hard not to make it garbage. Yeah. Uh, but I also knew that at the end of the day, like if any highbrow critic or anyone who considers himself a serious movie reviewer went into super crazy detail discussing the nuance of Wolf Cop and why it wasn't a good movie, in my opinion, that would say more about the critic than the movie. Yeah, they, and, they would uh, look like the idiot, right? Yeah, yeah so... I mean, 
I think when you wear your title on your sleeve and your intentions and call it Wolf Cop, um, it's you just know what it is. And uh, I didn't. I wanted to subvert that slightly by not just. I didn't want to have the title as an excuse to make it uh, be a bad movie. Mm. We tried really hard, um, but that being said, you know when you call it Wolf Cop, you have to deliver at some point a werewolf cop, and you have to have it be a little bit of fun. Uh, we didn't have the budget to make it be a wall-to-wall wolf cop driving around. Originally, I wanted it to be at least another 10 more minutes of you know shooting and face ripping off and such, but... Uh, you know, you just make those calls and prep and we couldn't afford it. So we said, OK, let's just make the best wolf cop we can. And hopefully if people like it, we can do more of the craziness in the sequel. Well, I actually looked online just to see if any of the highbrow UK press had, in fact, tried to have a pop at it. And none of them had. In fact, The Guardian gave you a you know, really I know. good view. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, the uh, I actually think we've gotten a lot more goodwill than I expected, truthfully. Um I mean, I had only had limited experience with... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. With critics and reviews with 13 Eerie, and they were not too kind uh, to that one. But again, I, I could tell my, I'm not going to say like it didn't bother me, but it wasn't a personal film to me, so... I was like, okay, well, these are all lessons, right? In what people want and don't want. And so when it came time to Wolf Cop, I knew my feelings could be hurt uh, by bad reviews. But still, uh, weirdly, they didn't. You know, going through the whole Cineku experience, people rate your trailer, they review you. And I, I had a good three months of people ripping into it or liking it. And it's crazy, but you kind of, you grow to not be bothered. You kind of get a thick skin because you realize... It's so easy to just say, this is crap. You know, it's so easy to go on Twitter and just write one sentence. And I've probably even done it a long time ago before I was in film and realized how much work it is. And yeah. I think most people who get it are pretty kind to us. And if they don't, it doesn't bother me if someone says I didn't like it. That's fine. I'm not going to engage with them. I, I usually engage only with people who liked it. Uh, but... I mean, the, the world is big and full of a lot of projects, and, and people always want to say their opinion. That's the world we live in right now, I think. You, you mentioned the IMDb rating, but like when, if you look at like the, the, the press that it was designed for, whether it's, it's Fangoria or Rue Morgue and, and all of these magazines and, and Bloody Disgusting, you know, it's one of the best reviews filmed, reviewed films in recent years but by the right people. And I'd say things like the IMDb rating almost stemmed from like being a, a victim of your own success, which is that this film became such a, a, a colossal thing and has gone so far and wide that actually all the people who normally wouldn't pick up a film with that title are watching it because it's Correct. on Netflix, because it's an HME, because it's, it's, it's everywhere to be found. Whereas traditionally a lot of, um, you know, in inverted commas, underground horror movies are only seen by by the, the target fan base, whereas this has been seen by everyone. Yeah, and honestly, the only reviews that matter to me, frankly, are um, the people we made it for. For me, it's the horror fans, it's the horror community. So if I get a bad review from a horror fan or someone who's super into werewolf films, then I'm like, ah, crap. But um, by and large, you know, the people who we've been engaging with since before we made the movie – 
the werewolf fans, the horror fans, um, they seem to like it or champion it enough that I feel like we didn't totally screw up. You know, it's like, okay, because we, you know, there were times, especially as we were making the movie, um, there were definite moments and definite scenes where I was like, we are ruining everything. This is <laughs> this is not scary. This is not funny, etc. The werewolf doesn't look good. You know, you go through all those things where you're insecure about, but uh, and I do think it could have been scarier um, and crazier, but I know I know why it wasn't. You know, just as always, there's budget things and time things, and 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 sometimes you don't know until you sit in a theater. You know, that was the beautiful part about making this movie was I got to sit in a theater and and with a packed crowd of people who I don't even know and and see their reactions. So um, I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to do a sequel because I now feel more than ever I get what people want. I mean, this is what I liked about it was I felt like I really, really liked those characters and and you know you're you're, you're there with them and that's what that build up did for me. But um, that's good. I'm glad you say that because there was like always, always the debate and always the worry going in. Is this too uh, from dusk till dawn? You know, does it feel like too weird of a tonal shift from the first half to the second half? But uh, no, I definitely you know. didn't think it was weird. Good. We just you know you go with your gut, but you're never sure. Do you want to give us a any kind of scoop on Wolf Cop Two? <laughs> I feel like I, I, uh, I, I'm just waiting right now for the trigger to be pulled um, that we we're still trying to pull together some financing. And hopefully, if all is right with the world, we'll be shooting in the next month or two. Wow. So I'm, I'm just honestly on standby. I've got the script written. Um, you know, it's gone through several drafts and lots of feedback from the producers and uh, I've started storyboarding. Emerson Ziffel, our effects artist, has started designing new things, which I don't really want to talk about yet. But uh, it's it's going to be crazy, you know. Like the, I, I've try not to say too much, but um, I'm, I'm assuming Leo hasn't had a shave since the first one. I hope not. I haven't seen him in a while, so I hope he's just ripped <laughs> because uh, he'll be, you know, he'll be definitely. It's all over, you know. He's going to be going through a lot of stuff and. Um, I've already warned him. He, I mean, he's read the script, so he knows it's it's not as easy on Wolf Cop. This one, definitely, he takes a shit kicking. And uh, it's all about, you know, to me, I love I love sequels more than usually the first film. And um, because I love I love getting over the origin and just playing, you know, learning the character. And so for me, actually, a funny fact is I actually started writing Wolf Cop 2 before I even wrote the first Wolf Cop. And because I thought, what's crazier than a movie called Wolf Cop? Wolf Cop 2, coming out of nowhere. But uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, I realized pretty quickly that wasn't going to fly because people were like, well, this is too weird. But I kind of thought, Wolf Cop, do you really need an origin? And everyone said, yes, you do. Uh, but now I'm, I'm actually like a kid in the playground now because it's going to be, you know, Tina will be back. Lou will be back. He's going to face an enemy he's gonna start the movie thinking he's awesome you know because i mean wouldn't you if you were him he's walking around like this is my town i'm a werewolf cop (laughs) and pretty quickly he's gonna have his ass handed to him and it's gonna be the realization that okay i'm i'm not the only creature out there in this world and um i'm not as great as i thought i was i i have to do a lot more to be the hero this time and um and I mean, obviously, have people started tweeting you yet about Wolf Cop Three? Is the question. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I will. There are some people who've already asked, like, "Are you doing two and three back to back? Will this happen? Will that?" Then, honestly, like, um, it took a lot of the first one was like all-consuming for two years because first we had to, you know, convince people to make the movie, which took a year. And then, we, and while that was happening, I was writing it and all that fun stuff. And 
Uh, then the actual making and promoting took a year because it was so grassroots. And, you know, with Sinaku, uh, we're a smaller outfit, so we don't have, you know, big publicity or marketing machine behind us. So a lot of the marketing was literally myself, Emerson Ziffel, the effects artist, and Leo Fafard, who's Wolf Cop. Uh, they sent us around the country just promoting the film and pranking people and doing weird stuff. So um, I hope that, I mean, I at first I was like, I don't know if I'd even want to do a sequel, but it didn't take long for inspiration to strike. And I actually would love to do four. I have I have the idea for uh, <laughs> a third one and a fourth one, and they're pretty different. And then maybe never say never, but I feel like if I could do the third and fourth one I want to do, I could be done. But because they're so, they're completely different. Three and four are like barely connected, but there's just like, you know, you write down your bucket list. And as I was working on the sequel, coming up with like, oh, this would be crazy. This would be crazy. It was like, oh man, um, it's a fun character, you know? That's genius. And and how did the vinyl album release came out? It was, it was, I mean, I literally hasn't left my decks. And, and obviously, I mean, the amazing thing is it's, it is an awesome soundtrack. But when you commissioned the soundtrack, did you were you aware that that it, in itself was going to become such a cult hit as well? No, no. And I attribute that to uh, Sinaku and their clever, clever marketing. Um, Jay Jolly, who's the executive producer on the film and, and kind of the the man behind Sinaku, he when we were looking for composers, Jay really got interested in the idea of Wolf Cop being he really, you know, drank the Kool-Aid on Wolf Cop being 100 percent Saskatchewan. You know, he really. He wanted, he always says Wolf Cop is Saskatchewan folk art, and he really wanted it to be, in every respect, a Saskatchewan project. So uh, while we were making the film, he was already, I think, like reviewing Saskatchewan musicians and just like scouring the internet. And he came across the Shooting Guns, and they were like this uh, doom metal band, and, and he really liked their sound, and he talked to them. And it's a really funny story unto itself that how much. You know, they I think they said they could pull off more than they could before. They're like, oh, yeah, we could do a soundtrack. No problem. And then they're like, oh, God, how do we do this? <laughs> but uh, I guess Jay talked to them and uh, he pitched me on on shooting guns. And he said, these guys are from your home province and you should really give them a listen. And I in my head, I had more of a, a John Carpenter sound I, I was hoping for. Right. And but then uh, so he, he said, like, well, tell them that then. So we shooting guns did a demo that had kind of a synth sound mixed in with their traditional rock sound and it was such a really cool hybrid that felt completely unique but also completely appropriate to an 80s throwback it was like okay this is perfect and uh you know once again we got to keep it saskatchewan and i knew the music was great when i heard it but much like the film itself i'm i'm was shocked at how people responded we've uh, if it was in the agenda but to put you on the spot what are your sort of top three Canadian films in low? I was thinking about that. I think uh, I don't know if I have a specific top three, but for this purpose, I will say uh, three that I think are kind of relevant. Uh, Fubar, Ginger Snaps and Strange Brew. Genius. Good call. Mm. Yeah, that's kind no, of I've only seen style of two of those. I've seen Ginger Snaps and Strange Brew, but I haven't seen the other one. Oh, Fubar is really good. You should see it. It's uh I knew nothing about it when I saw it. It's Michael Douse did it. He did uh, Goon, which is also really good. And it's just this weird mockumentary about these, again, kind of rednecky guys. And they're really great characters. Uh, I think it was done in Alberta. And it's just a really funny take on the mockumentary genre. You could honestly be halfway in and not know it's a mockumentary. So. <laughs> it's a bit like American Movie or something like that? Or? 
Yeah, it's totally like that. Those kinds of guys, except they don't even have the lofty ambitions of uh, <laughs> making a movie. You know, I think they're just drinking a lot and dealing with life. And they're really, it's a really funny movie. So to me, if I was going to say someone, they just landed in Canada, I'd say <laughs> Ginger Steps, Strange Brew, and Fubar, which would give them a very messed up, hard-drinking view of the, <laughs> the country. Which is which is very accurate. I've only lived here for 18 months, but... Uh... <laughs> There you go. That's, yeah, that, that's that's my comfort food of, of Canadian cinema, I'd say. Lo, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Do you want to give us a plug people, where people can find you, where they should go to find you online? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm just on uh, Twitter mostly, which is uh, my handle's Lolofilm, L-O-L-O-F-I-L-M. And I try and go on there at least for a little bit each day and interact with people if they're talking about Wolf Cop or whatever comes up next and, you know, just love talking movies. Thank you so much, Lyle. This really has been a, a, an honour to, to talk to you. So uh, thank you so much. And we'll be, we'll be stalking you and following your career forever. And, uh, and you know that we mean that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you too. I wish we would have ran into each other at the Canadian Comedy Awards. I know. I, I, can't, I can't believe that. I can't believe we were both in the same room and didn't, didn't know it. Yeah, uh, it, was, uh, it was kind of, I wasn't sure I would make it because I'm not usually based in Toronto. But uh, I, I went and it was pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. Did you win, Lyle? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> oh, neither did he. That's okay. You're listening to Underground Nights with James Mullinger and Paul Field. This podcast is a part of the Failed Media Network of Podcasts. Check out the slightly shambolic weekly Failed Critics podcast with me, Owen Hughes, and our host, Steve Norman, at our website, failedcritics.com, where you can also read more about James and Paul. I promise it isn't always about the Hunger Games. Back to Underground Nights. Fantastic interview there with Lowell. What a nice guy. Lovely guy. And and it's funny, um, I mean, we touched upon this, but it was weird that that he and I were in this, you know, I've been a a fan of his film. And the wonderful thing with social media now is, of course, that you, um, you can talk to your heroes. Like... Back in the day, if I like, if I saw a whole movie I liked, I mean, the only way I would ever get to speak to the director would be if I turn up and met them at a convention. The great thing now, and this is the same with how you and I met Paul, you know, is, mm-hmm. is you tweet about liking a film and the director responds. I mean, actually, I'll give you a, 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 an example. Like, you know, I'm a huge trauma fan. Um, yep. It looks like I'm going to be playing a small part in uh, Return to Newcomb High Volume 2. No way. Uh, based on the fact that I, you know, it became, it came to kind of Lloyd Kaufman's attention that I'm possibly one of the biggest trauma fans out there, or, or, or maybe not one of the biggest fans, but I certainly have one of the biggest collections of, for example, I, I challenge anyone to have more copies of Surf Nazis on VHS than I do. And um, that combined with, I guess he watched, he, he actually posted on one of my stand up clips on YouTube, Toxie Loves You, right? To have your all time hero since you were 10 years old post on on your youtube clip that he likes your stand-up is as good as it gets and and this is i mean that's how obviously we set the interview up with lowell but also you know i posted about my love of wolf cop and next thing you know we're in touch with the guy and you know and then of course when i was nominated for a canadian comedy award i was in the same room as him didn't even know we were we were both there um and he he was obviously up for best film which actually funny enough again this wasn't actually a deliberate segue but one of the films that i want to recommend next was actually the film that won the Canadian Comedy Award for for, for for best film, but but you you, you speak first. No, well, my recommendation it's um it's a, the the first feature from um, the Soska Sisters, right. which is Dead Hooker in a Trunk. Right, which is no. not only it, it like Wolf Cop, yeah, fits into that very 
very small group of films that lives up to a completely fucking insane title. Correct. Right? I mean, it literally is. The Soska sisters driving around with the, with, with a couple of pals, getting into all sorts of scrapes yeah. with a dead hooker in the trunk. My, it, I mean, the t- I mean, if you need to be sold on this film, yeah. then... No, then, 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 you're listening to the wrong exactly. podcast. Turn off now, <laughs> if if the word "dead hooker" John doesn't appeal to you, then I I don't know how you made it this long listening to us because uh, my go on my I was gonna say my favourite bit is when they convince the motel owner that the dead hooker in the trunk is in fact an alive trucker in the home right, right, right in the trunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's genius, and again, it, it fits into that camp of films that you know it's obviously tongue in cheek. But, yeah, but it it functions for real, right? It's not it's not all nudge nudge wink wink, which which is is a, a, a you know something I don't like when things are kind of too over the top like that. Oh no, it's completely balls out, self aware. Yeah. I just I just thought it, it yeah I it, there really is nothing to say. It's called Dead Hooker in a yeah. Trunk. It's a good If you're into that, you should be downloading it or buying it online right now. If you're not into it. Fuck off from our podcast. <laughs> yeah, we don't want you. You're not welcome. This, this, this isn't for you. <laughs> go and listen to Failed Critics. Yeah, yeah. If, if this is yeah, go and li- watch, listen to watch Claudia Winkleman on uh, <laughs> film, whatever year it is now. Um, well, well, my recommendation, as I say, is the film that won um, best. Film at the Canadian Comedy Awards, uh, uh, I'm, you know, and I'm proud to say, well, I was nominated for an award for, for, for best live show, and my TV series was nominated for, for, for best director, but um, I didn't win. Neither did Wolf Cop, so I can, I can, you know, I can live with myself. If 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 Wolf Cop wasn't good enough, and I'm not, well, I can live with that. But the winner was a worthy winner. It was a um, film called How to Be Deadly. Now, again, a wonderful thing about the part of Canada I live in, Atlantic Canada, is you get stars that are built up through that through that area so trailer park boys are an example of a kind of an east coast comedians that did then uh, branch out and become huge and, and in some ways international there's a character in newfoundland called donnie dumphy who's basically essentially a kind of stoner type guy normal guy for, from newfoundland who, who, who rides a bike and uh, rides a dirt bike and he's been shooting little videos for youtube and stuff for years and just did his first feature film called How to Be Deadly. Now it's telling how popular this became that it, you know, scooped, uh, swept, swept the board at the Canadian Comedy Awards. Um, it can be ordered online. I, they did a tour of Canadian cinemas, which is of, of, often the way you have to obviously do release a, a, a small independent Canadian film. Is is the stars and the and the makers go on tour with the film, which is how they they did this. Um, and I ordered the DVD. It's called How to Be Deadly, and it's it's absolutely hilarious. And the amazing thing about it is, even though obviously a lot of the humour is very localised, and as a as a as an Atlantic Canadian local now, a lot of those jokes do play into my sense of humour. I also felt like anyone out there could relate to this because there's obviously equivalents of what they call skeets there. Um, uh, and I guess I guess the equivalent in England would be would be chav. Unfortunately, though, you know, chav is obviously a word that has been hijacked by uh, snobs in the upper classes, and, and like most things in England, you know, with the with the appalling class system that you fuckers have, and I, which was the reason I left. Um, uh, in England, in in, in Canada, like a, a skeet would be the equivalent word of champ, but it doesn't have quite the same nasty undercurrent and kind of the poor hating. But point being that a film like How to Be Deadly celebrates uh, 
you know, all that's great about about guys like Donny Dunphy, and it, it deserves to have a wider audience. So, yeah, I employ I employ everyone to uh, check it out. Mate, I'm definitely going to watch that. Yeah, it's it's well worth it. And and there's, I mean, another one that I wanted to recommend was a film called um, No Clue, which is again a, a Canadian comedian from the other side of Canada, a guy called Brent Bart, who did the who, who was the star and creator of the biggest Canadian sitcom of all time called Corner Gas, which ran for dozens of seasons. And he made this movie with Amy Smart. And it's just, it's a very, very uh, low key, very funny, enjoyable, essentially spoof of like a private eye movie, kind of like a, a Who's Harry Crumb type movie uh, to use a, a cultural reference that only people like us would understand. <laughs> Right. Lastly, we don't normally do new new releases on this show, but um, over at Foul Critics, they they seem reluctant somehow to tackle Gaspar Noé's Love 3D. Right. And and why were they reluctant to cover it? Was it because they're offended by uh, the, the um, hardcore sexual nature of this film? I think that, and the fact that the new um, Hunger Games film is out this week. Right. And they like shit films. They love shit films over at Fell Critics. <laughs> Owen is especially a massive fan of the, of the Hunger Games. Right. See, see, this is where like, I, I, it wasn't fair of me to say what I just said, because I don't, in the same way I don't want mainstream fans to, to disparage me for liking trauma movies and all the rest of it, it's not fair of me to disparage people that like, I, I've never seen a Hunger Games movie. I don't think I ever will. I've never seen a Lord of the Rings movie. I don't think I ever will. I've never seen a Harry Potter movie. I don't think I ever will. Um, that's not to say that I think any of those things are bad. It's just so not for me. And that's not that I'm not into Like, I mean, I like Swords and Sorcery, but if I'm going to watch that, I will watch Wizards of the Demon Sword uh, or Nymphoid Barbarian in Dinosaur Hell. Uh, I, could, I personally could not sit through a Lord of the Rings film. No, do you know what? And you, you're quite right. And it is about not being for you. And uh, funny enough, that that our friend, Mr. Danny Dyer, had a tear up this week with uh, Mark Kermode. Oh, did he? Did you, yeah. I, tell on, me. On the Twitter. Yeah, yeah, he called him out and just like, started going, oh, you know, have you not seen my, um, have you not seen my short? Right, right, right. And was Kermode responding? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said apparently some well-paid actor on the BBC has been having a pop at me and all this. And Danny Dyer's, you know, replied to him and said, you know, you call me out by name, you mug, and all this. <laughs> right, right, right. Interesting. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it's interesting, the war between the two of them, because, you know, I'm obviously a, a fan of a lot of the work that Camo's done in, over the years. In the, as a, a teenager, I would listen to... It was him that kind of got me into The Exorcist. It, he was the first person to be championing the work of Tarantino, you know, which is what makes his hatred of Danny Dyer so bizarre. And it also kind of goes back to the, the class system thing I was talking about, whereby, you know, it just seems odd to me that it, it's deemed acceptable for you know, a middle class critic to impersonate very badly the voice of a, of a working class actor who is undeniably talented. You don't have to like everything Danny Dyer's ever done to in the same way. Mark Camo wouldn't have a job if everyone had to agree with every word he said. So why is it he has to disparage someone's entire career? And I'm guessing the short film Danny was talking about was is the Andrea Arnold. uh, Yes, correct. Who who he loves. Kermode loves Andrea Arnold movies. Loves them. And yeah, what's his like? Yeah, how? And I would would be interested. I mean, I I really I do want to see the the Kermode Dyer debate face to face. Like I want to see what. Because Kermode obviously he's not wrong in saying that some of Dyer's films are shit. 
uh, the only other person I know that would agree with that so verifiously uh, is Danny Dyer himself. But to, to kind of disparage Dyer's entire career, I know we're going off off the point here because this yeah, yeah, yeah. last time. But but yeah, as you say, um, Commode loves the work of Andrea Arland, and there's no doubt that Danny is spectacular in her film. Um, but that's interesting to hear. I will check out that. Uh, that You've got to look. Just final word on this. What annoys me is that Commode will love, for example, Hunger Games, yeah. which is aimed at tweens. Mm. Right? Mm. That's not for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But will absolutely slaughter Danny Dyer films. Yeah. But they're not for him either. They're definitely not. So for... Where is he drawing the line between what's for him and what's not for him? I'd rather he just didn't bother or just said, "Do you know what? Didn't like it, but it's not for me." Yeah. Rather than it's absolute shit. I agree, and it's it, it's a weird thing, right? Where, where I live now, in this part of Canada. What what's weird for, uh, coming from England, right? Where as a comedian, everyone's chasing a good review. Um, in in the film world, you have to you know you're, you're chasing the reviews to, to get the film noticed. Where I live in Canada, there's not much criticism. I you don't really have many critics. For example, I am um, exist very I, I I exist very well and very successfully without any reviews because the way my career works is people come to see my stand up if they enjoy it they tell people on social media or face-to-face, and then more people come, and it's built up that way. I never get reviewed. It, it exists completely outside of that. And the same thing kind of goes for, like, political commentary. In the, the, the newspapers where I live, don't really comment that. There's not as much... You know, in England, you've just got newspapers, just the Daily Mail full of, like, saying, you know, all immigrants are bad, and then, and then, and then you've got the Guardian saying all immigrants are good, and then everyone's arguing these things. And it's just the opinions of people that are just overpaid people right whereas he don't have that you what you have is a, a huge portion of people that make up their own mind about shit without reading newspapers to, to dictate it and that does seep into the world of of, of movies in the films like wolf cop and, and how to be deadly the, the the key to their success is in no way down to getting reviews it's it's festival buzz it's word of mouth it's social media it, it it's fan bases and so yeah the the the, the for me to think back to this kind of thing where, you know, you, you, you know a, a newspaper sending Mark Commode, basically Commode and, and most critics in the UK, it's they're entertainers, same as anyone else. When, when, when you see that, Danny, that Commode has given the new Danny Dyer film a one star review, it is entertainment for those observer readers. Oh, you know, Commode's going to sh- shit all over that working class actor again. Let's have a chuckle at this. Whereas... Whereas what a critic's supposed to do really is, is, is you know, inform. Whereas is the guy, i.e. us or anyone else, who wants to see the new Danny film going, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to go and see the new Danny film. Let me just see what promoting <laughs> and then I'll make my mind up. Like, like it's completely pointless. Film criticism in so many ways is completely pointless. In the, you know, it, it, it's all subjective. I mean, Seinfeld made the point to me once that, like, because I said, you know, how... We only have like essentially two full time comedy critics in England. And he goes, it's because you don't need them because everyone knows what they like. If you like Jason Manford, if he gets five stars or one star in Evening Standard, it makes no difference. You are going to see Jason Manford. Do you know what? That, I've never thought of it like that. Is absolutely bang on true. Right, isn't it? Because I will go and see Dave Spikey. Yeah. Don't care what anyone says. Okay. I'll go and see, you know, David Baddiel, and I'll go and see Frank Skinner. Yeah. It, it, it's based on it, 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 and if I'm the same, Skinner, for example, is one of my all-time favorite comedians. If his new tour starts and it gets a one-star review, 
that is absolutely not going to put me off doing it. The critics are entertainers. They they write these reviews for, for entertainment, which is why they take such fierce stances. It's why you so rarely read a three-star review of anything. It's always Peter Bradshaw giving a total slagging to something, which again, for entertainment, I read because I find it funny. Or if it's five stars, I read why they love something, even though I know I'll completely go to the screen. Like, I haven't seen American Sniper because I know I'll fucking hate American Sniper. I read <laughs> the Empire Review of American Sniper, the five-star review, because I knew it would be entertaining to see them try and defend this Republican right-wing piece of shit. And 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 it's it's weird now, as I say, living in a place where where I mean I hate the phrase critic proof, but that's essentially you know here where I live now. I mean, when I first got here, I'm like, how do I get reviews? They're like, well, you can't. I'm like, oh, how am I going to do my job without reviews? And then suddenly it's like, oh, actually, I'm better off without them. No, you know, I do a show. If someone hates it, they tell someone they hate it. If someone likes it, you know, and and it's all about the it's all about the odds, right? If I if I do a show to a thousand people. And 900 like it and 100 hate it. Well, statistically, those 900 are going to be saying nice things and it grows. Whereas if a critic comes in like, you know, a, a comedy critic and goes to a show of 10,000 or 15,000 people at the O2 and they hate it, they slag off that person, despite the fact there was 15,000 people laughing their asses off. So what is the point of that review? Mate, mm. you've absolutely nailed it. Oh, thanks. Far more eloquently than I ever could. Well, no, it's, it, it, it's interesting. And I'd obviously, you know, I was obviously aware of that to an extent living in the UK. But as I say, chasing the reviews was everything. Whereas here I am in Canada, it's it's all about voice of the people, both politically, both in the film world and definitely in the comedy world. It's simply, do you deliver to the people that, that like what you do? And the success of Warcrop and Lost After Dark and The Editor and Ginger Snaps and Ryan's Babe and How to Be Deadly and No Clue and all of the films and Hooker in a Trunk and all these films we talked about. None of those films have have been a good thing for the filmmakers because of the fact that they got a glowing review in a mainstream publication. Indeed. And we're not here to, you know, th- this podcast isn't about we ain't going to be watching st- too much stuff that we really really hate yeah. and slating it we're here to you know have a laugh and talk about the films we exactly. love which, which brings us back to, to, to Gaspar no so you've seen love 3d i've seen love 3d right. and, and what so do you think? okay it, it main character guy called uh, murphy right. who is an american student film student uh living in paris and um it opens he's shacked up with his with his girlfriend um they've just had a kid and then you get this kind of um monologue you can hear inside his head that oh god you know what am i doing here why have i had this kid and turns out he's still in love with his ex-girlfriend who's called electra pretty quickly we discover that he used to live with electra and his current squeeze who he's got a kid with live next door and they decided to have a little bit of three-way action right yeah, and, and, that didn't end. And it goes into a very, <laughs> I'm assuming what is a very explicit. Um... Oh, mate, the first thing, literally, as the film's open, just straight into fucking. Right. Now, his dick is fully erect. He's slamming it into her. You see everything. See, see and, and, it's, and it is the actual actors doing it. As with, uh, Oh, yeah. So, so, yeah. so, like the Winterbottom film, what was it called? Nine, nine Songs. Nine, nine Songs, um, yes. And then I actually very recently watched. Um, most of uh, Nymphomania 1 and 2 director's cuts were in HMV on Blu-ray. Oh, so, so I, I, I was hoping you'd mention this. Yeah, so I've made it through one and a half. I mean, it's weird. 
I read all the Nymphomaniac reviews and couldn't quite get head or tail of what it was about. And I read the Commode review, the Peter Bradshaw review. A lot of people, some, obviously some people hating it, some people loving it, but a lot of people kind of unsure and on the fence. And that's definitely where I am. And I'm watching it going, this is, and, and as a lot of people pointed out, for Lars von Trier, surprisingly accessible film. And it, yeah, but it, it's kind of absurd. And it's also kind of very pseudo intellectual like i mean is is the whole comparing sex to fishing thing a joke or is it is he is he satirizing uh uh kind of you know sixth form psychology class or is it actually that long that the tree is actually just a fucking idiot who, who has managed to pull the wool over everyone's eyes i mean i'm sorry but um, didn't he just at the age of 50 get the word fuck tattooed on his fist like is he being ironic or is he actually just a fucking dunce? right he is a fucking idiot no he really is yeah. and I, I tell you why I, I, watching this mm. and I, I, I compared notes with with uh, brooker from the foul critics yeah. afterwards and all we could both talk about was shia labeouf Saying, Nikos. Right, right. When he's no, do you remember the scene? Yeah. He's trying to get the girl to get her pants off. Yeah, yeah. Get your Nikos off. Yeah, but yeah. well, this is the thing. Is that, you know, it's just so bad. That's the thing. Um, uh, Shana Boo is a is terrible in it. Oh, it's beyond awful. awful. There is so much awful. awfulness in the film. Um, there are some scenes that are somewhat entertaining. Yeah, you know, like the train scene is kind of interesting as a sketch, but like. Five hours of this shit. It, yeah, it would have been a, a it would have been a okay. I think what he's done that's clever is that if he'd have made it an hour and a half movie, it would have been a two star movie. Unfortunately, when you sit and invest six hours in something, you go, well, there must be something in it. So you kind of peep, the critics veer towards three and four stars because they thought there must he must have something going on here, but I don't quite know what. And actually, so I guess my question is: is that is Love Three D? Because the thing with Nine Songs and Nymphomaniac is there's hardcore fucking in it, so you go right. Well, that's interesting. It's no longer interesting. So does Love Three D have something else to it? It does, but I can see why it's going to turn a lot of people off for 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 a better phrase. Right. It's yeah. So you've got you know this guy, student, Paris girlfriend, yeah. cheats on her, mm. gets the neighbour up the duff because mm. he has his threesome. But then girlfriend goes away for the day. He can't leave the next door girl alone. So he goes back there. She gets pregnant. And then it flashes back. Right. And and you kind of see his relationship with um with the original girl, Electra, from, from the start almost. It's, it's, it's very non-linear, so it keeps jumping mm. backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Um, but, you know, Gaspar Noé here, I think, is taking the piss. Right. Yeah, there's... Almost like flashbacks to there's a hotel in the um, it right at the start in their bedroom, right. which looks like it's come straight out of Enter the Void right. with a little sign above it. Yeah, and then you have the scene in the sex club in this with the with the really music. Yeah. The the alleyway is there from Irreversible, right? Which which Irreversible, which is a, an example of. In my opinion, a, a, a great film that that is obviously full of extremely shocking imagery. Yeah, but to me, worked. Oh yeah, it's and, love. Is like he's taken. It's it's almost like a mixture of irreversible and into the void. Yeah. But he's he's turned the dial down a bit. The camera work isn't. 
I had a headache for about an hour afterwards. Right, right. After Love 3D. But if you watch Irreversible or Enter the Void, you're looking at a couple of hours. It's just so spinny. It's just so kinetic the whole time. The colours. You know, Thomas Bangout is doing that soundtrack. It's, it's just relentless. Right. Whereas this is a little bit more accessible. In fact, probably his most accessible film. Yeah. So the music isn't as aggressive. The camera work isn't as, as aggressive. There's almost a narrative. Right. You know, you, you can kind of see this love story um, and, and, it, and it explores their, their relationship through, you know, from, from when they first meet. And, it, and it's all kind of based around sex. They start experimenting with sex with drugs, sex in orgy clubs, threesomes, trannies. Um, but it's incredibly explicit all the way well, through. Well, and this is the weird thing is that is that whenever this happens, and, and all the films we've talked about are perfect examples of this, it, it, it just screams of like, I can do this so I will. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'm going to show hardcore sex on camera. So, and it's an odd thing because it's kind of, I, I don't know what the equivalent would be with, with other films, but it would be kind of like if... In a horror movie, they decided just to show the close-up of the knife going all the time. Like, if two people are, are, are fucking, why do, you, why do you need to see the actual penetration? And maybe there is a film out there for which that is uh, a requirement. But would Nymphomaniac have been any different or, or any less good or less shit or whatever if they hadn't shown actual penetration? Same goes for um, Nine Songs. Well, no, I mean, Nine Songs had nothing else. That's the weird thing about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's odd. Well, this is it's long as well. This is the, the I really enjoyed it. Okay, the the, the central performance from the from Lee Guy Murphy is a guy called Carl Glusman. Right. He is not good. He, I think he was cast. I mean, it's always a the... difficult one. Well, you know, how do you judge how big another man's dick is? It's not porno massive, right. but it, you know, it's you know a small baby's arm holding an apple. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, there's a prodigious length there, which is obviously, if you're going to do a film like this, you need. But the two girls, Mm. um, Electra and Omi, Mm. they haven't done anything before, and they are really good. Really? They carry the whole film, and they are fantastic. Interesting. Well, this fucking idiot's done, like, Starship Troopers 5. Right, right. Yeah? (laughs) The girls haven't done anything. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the one thing that there hasn't been... Uh, which would be interesting is there's never been someone willing to do this stuff on camera and then go on to actually be like like significantly successful. Like like people mm. thought like Margot, well, I can't remember her name, uh, who did Nine Songs. Like you know, a talented actress who was kind of bubbling under, uh, did Nine Songs. Uh, she she's a kind of feature in London society mags, goes to the right parties, but hasn't gone on to have have a a, a particularly big career based on the fact that people think of her as a hardcore porn actress. Yeah, I mean, what about the girls from Blue is the Warmest Colour? Have they done anything? I don't really know. No, but they, I mean, but they probably could on the basis that that obviously was a masterpiece. I haven't seen it, but by all accounts. There's lots of lesbian action, James. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I kind of know it. It's on my... (laughs) (laughs) One thing puts me off is the length, you know. um... Never mind the quality, feel the length. Exactly, exactly, you know. I saw brilliant. I was listening to a great Todd Barry comedy CD the other week when he was saying when he goes to Netflix, he doesn't look at the ratings, he looks at the length. So it's like, yeah, masterpiece. Uh, masterpieces of one cinema, two and a half hours. And he's like, oh, let me see what Jim Belushi can bash out in 70 minutes. And, there you and go. that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's, 
it's going to get a lot of traction. It is going to be a cult film. I think my annoyance is that I didn't see it. Um, I had had football training midweek and I couldn't get to the one-off 3D screening in Brighton just to see the reaction for the 3D money shot. Right, right. Because you've got a massive jizzing cock pumping out jizz, boof, 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 all over the screen. Now, clearly, right, when that's in a film, someone hasn't sat down written the greatest script of their life, and then at the last minute gone, oh, I think what's vital for this is a big jizzing cock. What's happened is someone's gone, <laughs> a big jizzing cock in 3D, let's write a film around it. Do you know what? There is a bit of that going on. But I, I have to say, honestly, having having seen um, uh, uh, Nymphomaniac, Nymphomaniac, sorry, that was terrible. This, uh, this is actually a decent yeah, film. There yeah. is a really good film that's just a little bit too long. Yeah. And... He is kind of sticking two fingers up to the audience in a, in a way. I think he's taking the piss. Right, right. And he's like, I've just managed to get a load of fucking on the big screen. Yeah. The BBFC have passed this uncut. Really? I mean, like that? Dressed up as art. And I, I, yeah, that's what I think he's done. I think he's absolutely ripped ripped everyone a new arsehole. Yeah, he's just trying to put a point. And don't get me wrong. I mean, that is in itself honourable to think. Oh, to think brilliant. That, to think that when we were kids, the Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre were all banned. Not not even cut. It's actually banned. And the fact that now this gets passed uncut, I mean, I mean, the, the world is a changing. Mate, you know, even back to the Channel Four Red Triangle films. Yeah. Do you remember these? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All like all these like kind of underground naughty cinema, which you, you know, as a kid, you, you'd, you'd watch late night on a twelve-inch black and white in your bedroom yeah. on the off chance of seeing a nipple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's exactly it it's it's well it's changed it's easier for kids nowadays yeah the bastards yeah. Like, it's like finding a porno mag in the woods in maidenhead exactly exactly like now it's it's just weird it's weird to think that as a child yeah you want you, you if you wanted to see a naked lady on a monday you'd have to make a plan that saturday to go into the shop shoplift shoplift probably a playboy <laughs> take it to the woods open it up and there it is a naked lady now an 11 year old boy is sat in class and in his pocket, <laughs> by his mother, is a device that has every porn in the world ever in his pocket. Like, the how is that isn't an insane... I mean, I'll give you an example. Right? I had a, there was a guy I was at school with, a guy called Fred, Fred Carwana. I'll use his real name. He um, realised that keeping you know, porn magazines in his locker and stuff was risky. Keeping them by his bed was risky. He might be found by someone. So what he would do was he would tear out his favourite pages and just keep them in his pocket, carry them around with him everywhere. So in his pocket was this... this Thick fucking pile of just of, of razzle pages like that, that unmistakable pink glossy shine, like like the folds in his and of course all dog-eared. But he had this huge that was the size of a Bible, this thing in his pocket, all of his favorite porn pages. And one of the greatest moments of my entire life was sat in a CDT class. I think it's still called that, craft design technology class. We're sat there, end of the class, the the the, the teacher, Mr. Deer, stands up and he says, Right. He counts out the scalpels. There's a scalpel missing. And he goes, one of you little shits has stolen a scalpel. I want you all to empty out your pockets. And to this day, I have never seen anything funnier than the look on Fred's face (laughs) when he realized in front of an entire class of boys and girls, he was going to reach into his pocket and pull out this bulging pile of of razzle pages, dogged and soiled, and place them on the table. The look on his face was the greatest thing I have ever seen. Fred's pocket, mate. And nowadays, every child 
in the world doesn't just have their favorite pawns in their pocket. They have every single pawn ever made, every video. Like, and, and don't forget, like, that was, I'm talking about a picture of a naked lady. These kids now, at the age of 10, they type fisting in, boom, it's there. It's a, it, it's a terrible world, but, um, but I'm, I'm sure my sons are going to enjoy it when they're teenagers. Fred's Pocket. There's, an, there's, there's the episode title right there. Fred's Pocket. Hashtag Fred's Pocket. Fred's Pocket. <laughs> find, find us on Instagram with hashtag Fred's Pocket. On that bombshell. We're done. Anything to plug? Um, just check out my website, jamesmanager.com. Um, my, um, I don't know if this is going live, but I, I, there's a movie that has been made about my life that is coming out next year, and they're currently doing test screenings in London. Uh, so I hope you'll go to one of those, Paul. I'll send you the details. Yeah, where's my, where's my invite? Well, uh, you're not on Facebook. Fucking hell, mate. I'm NFI, well, not no, fucking no, invited. I, I actually just got the invitation <laughs> uh, during, this, um, during this podcast. So I will send you the Facebook link, which I assume you'll be able to click on, even though obviously not on Facebook. But um, it's in Soho somewhere in a week or two. Nice. It's called The Comedian's Guide to Survival. So if anyone has an interest in that, the Twitter handle is Comedian's Guide. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just keep in touch. Email me at james at jamesmonger.com. I've got nothing to plug. Well, yes. <laughs> you'll be at the test screening for my film and you can see what you think. There you go. Yeah. Thanks, James. Thank you, mate. Mad love, brother. See you soon. Nice one. Live the dream. Take care. Underground Nights is presented by James Mullinger and Paul Field. This episode was produced by Owen Hughes and the music was provided by James Yule. Underground Nights is a part of the Failed Media Network of podcasts and you can check us out at failedcritics.com or find us on Twitter at UG Nights. Thanks for listening. Right, yeah, to put my cock away and then I'm good to go. <laughs> we have to keep it out. You do know that he'll Owen edits in stingers at the end. <laughs> really? Every episode. <laughs> <laughs> and you've just done that one. <laughs> <laughs>